welcome to a new episode of the Stephen Perkins Podcast. It's been a while. I forget how to even enter this thing. Um, it is now 2018. It is a new year. It is a new us. We are killing it so far. January, by the way, can we just admit it? January felt like the longest year uh, that we've ever gone through. And yes, it felt like a year. Uh, I think an election happened in January of 2018. That's what it felt like. That was the emotional weight of how January felt. Anyways, I'm back in the new year. Got a lot of big plans for this show this year, as well as everything else at Outset uh, this year. And excited to share those with you. Um, on this week's show, I'm speaking with Jared Labor. He is a Young Voices advocate and one of our podcast contributors here at the Outset Network. So please treat him with respect um, because I know how you people are. Just kidding. Um, although, you know, I'm sure you have a feisty side. I was on Twitter this morning and, and all I see is the taxation is theft versus it's not theft debate. Um, so I see how dirty you people can play sometimes. I need you all to calm down. I need you all to take some sort of some sort of antiacid uh, and just chill. Like you know, have a more enjoyable enjoyable weekend. Hopefully, this podcast lets you do it. Jared and I speak this week about his background, uh, how he got involved with everything he's involved with, as well as why so many young white people aren't woke. And that sounds kind of sarcastic, but it's actually a real problem. And Jared wrote about it recently at the Washington Examiner. The link to his article are in the show is in the show notes today, uh, so you can check that out. But we talk about why this is a problem, where it could be coming from, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Jared Labor. Jared, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you are a Young Voices advocate. You live in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, how is it living in a place that some people would call uh, the swamp? Uh, I think I think it is a – it's unfortunate that people see it that way. Yes, yeah. the federal government is here, and yes, they do a lot of really bad things. But once you get away from down – of course, I live in the – I live in just – right in the sort of outer suburbs, you know, just right across the river from D.C. But, of course, I live uh, or I spend quite a bit of time in the district itself. And once you get away from downtown, you know, if you don't spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill, which I don't, and you get out into the neighborhoods, particularly some of the more historic neighborhoods in D.C., uh, you see a very sort of, you know, lively and thriving, you know, you know very sort of culturally uh, – culturally rewarding place so it's it's unfortunate that people uh, view D a lot of people who have never been to dc or don't live here uh view it that way i agree i think it's one of the most beautiful cities in this country um there's all all sorts of stuff to do and it, like i'll be there next next month when cpac is going on and mm -hmm. um and just a lot of great people live there i mean outside of people who do government work there's just there is a creative scene there um, and a really intellectual scene there that's just kind of incredible. Um, and so I, I think it's a place that it's kind of like New York to me. It's a place that people from all sorts of backgrounds go. It's not mm -hmm. just the political people. Um, so you get a nice mix of, of folks there. Um, wh what do you do day to day? So in my day job, I'm a I'm a grant writer uh, at a, an, a nonprofit here in uh, Arlington, Virginia. 
So I write during the day, and then it, uh, at night, I you know I, f- I sort of moonlight as a freelance writer and you know journalist and commentator. So I, I write during the day, and then I go home at night and I, I write some more then. And occasionally we'll go on, you know, TV. You know, been on, you know, local news and television uh, in the DC area a few times. So uh, that's how I that's how I tend to spend my days. So it's a lot of writing. A lot um, of writing, yeah. Yeah, especially grant writing. It's a very specific kind of writing that uh, that a lot of people would have uh, would have some challenges with. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it is, it is, it is, it's very different from journalism and other types, you know, whether if you, you do commentary writing or if you do reporting or things like that, uh, it's very different from that. But the good thing is, particularly if you work at a place that, uh, is established and has been around for several years, uh, grant writing, you're encouraged to plagiarize your own work. Uh, and so, you know, you're not, you're not allowed, you're not supposed to sort of reinvent the wheel and things like that, uh, you're allowed, you know. There's always if you've been at a place that's established, or if you work at a place that's established, there's there's usually a solid foundation uh, upon which to to build. So, how'd you get into that role? What'd you go to college for? Yeah, so I studied history uh, at a at Marshall University, which is a, a state university in West Virginia. Uh, I grew up near there. I, you know, I'm from Appalachia. I'm from Ohio. I'm from the state of Ohio, but I'm from the sort of southeastern Appalachian part of Ohio. Mm. And so I went to I went to college not far away from from my hometown uh, in West Virginia, and I studied history. And honestly, I stumbled into the you know the organization that I work at is called the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, I stumbled into it quite honestly. I, I graduated from college. Uh, I moved to the DC area without a job, okay. and with uh, not really. I moved here with my best friend, uh, who and he when we when we got here. He pretty much was the only person I knew, so I had no sort of like larger sort of social network or anything like that mm-hmm. uh, to tap into. And yeah, I moved here and I was I was looking for work and I applied for an internship at this nonprofit. And they were the first they were the first people to bite, uh, offer me an internship, a paid internship, which was very uh, fortunate. That doesn't happen very much, right. uh, particularly here in DC. Right. And uh, here we are, almost you know five and a half, almost six years later. Uh, they haven't uh, they haven't pushed me out the door yet. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, when you were in college, what kind of were you involved in any organizations? Yeah, so I did a I did a little bit of a sort of college activism, as a lot of people do. Um, you know, I was involved on the the local. Uh, or the, the campus chapter of Amnesty International, but I was also involved in the campus chapter, the sort of you know the libertarian group on campus. So sort of two clashing uh, you know ideological groups there. Um, and I did other things. You know, I was you know I was involved in the sort of the music school. You know, with like the choral arts and things like that. So um, so yeah, I, I did a I did a fair I did a fair amount of campus activism back in the day. And in terms of the formation of your political ideology, I guess the first question is how would you describe um, how would you describe your ideology when it comes to politics? Yeah, so uh, of course I'm heavily influenced by uh, the sort of the intellectual tradition of the cl- of classical liberalism. Uh, you know the ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment. You know David Hume, Adam Smith, through sort of 20th century thinkers like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. I'm heavily influenced by people like that. I would say if you had to put a label on my political views, the closest. You know, obviously no one is 
you know, 100% one thing or another, sure. but the, the closest the closest label that most accurately describes me, I would say, is libertarian. Uh, but of course, I, there's a lot of baggage with that term. I'm not super comfortable with it, uh, particularly in the U.S., you know, you know, the sort of history of the libertarian movement in the U.S., uh, but if there was a label that most dis- sort of accurately described my policy positions, libertarian is probably the closest to it. I'm probably, I, you know, I'm the same way. I call myself a Romney libertarian, which actually has n- no intrinsic meaning to it because those two things <laughs> conflict. Um, but I, I think it, it's kind of like I agree with you. The libertarian, whenever you whenever you have that title, um, there's a lot of of connotations involved with that. Um, and people sort of picture uh, a certain kind of libertarian, or they they think of the extremes that the ideology can produce. And um, but most of the libertarians I talk to, uh, especially most who do actual political involvement or activism, they're much more. I, I don't want to say mainstream or moderate, but that's almost what it's like. It, it's not the extremes of it, and and most of the libertarians I know would not associate with that. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's sort of a professional, you know, sort of libertarian movement here in D.C., you know, that's sort of called, you know, Beltway Libertarians. And, you know, they're largely affiliated with, you know, think tanks like the Cato Institute and, you know, the Reason Foundation and places like that. Yeah, it's not, it's you know, they don't sort of fit the typical, you know, the sort of, sort of you know, what you think of when, you know, when you hear the term libertarian, whether you think of that and you see, you picture like, young kids wearing like you know all black and you know like sort of waving the anarchy flag or if or on the sort of opposite end of that spectrum a sort of you know sort of southern cultural conservative they don't they don't uh, always fit that mold i just got a flashback I, I had a moment recently in an airport where someone started talking to me and they described themselves as a former anarchist turned into a habitat for humanity truck driver <laughs> and it, it, was, it was the weirdest transformation I've ever heard of someone going through, but nonetheless, kind of had a had a flashback there. So, in terms of, I guess, realizing that that's what you believe, right? Um, mm-hmm. Was that in college that you started to read some of those classics, or that you started to to get some of those traditional libertarian sources? Was it before college and high school? When in your, I guess, when in your journey of that, um, did those things come to be? It was definitely in college. Um, I was highly, highly sort of affected. So I sort of I came of age and was getting ready to go into college right around the time that the Iraq War started to go super south. You know, 2007, 2008, 2006, 2007, 2008. Uh, I was getting ready to enter college, and you know, the Iraq War at the time was not going well, and it didn't seem like it was going to get any better. And so I was I was originally mo- highly motivated by sort of anti-war activism, and then when I got to college, uh, yeah, I was introduced to a couple of people on campus who were already part of the libertarian group, and one of them, I think, I remember gave me a copy of Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom, and also introduced me to F.A. Hayek, um, and that was that was sort of the wasn't so much a turning point but that was sort of the the starting point gotcha Mm -hmm. um so so now coming out of college you you get the you you move to dc which i think is that that gave me anxiety just thinking about moving there without (laughs) a job but it obviously worked out for you um how would you say and and i 
you've probably gotten this question before, and certainly everyone who lives in D.C. gets this question whenever there's a transition of president, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how would you say the mood, if it has, how has it changed in the Beltway? Um, well, it's gotten a little better over the last year, but it's still pretty uh, panicky uh, and uh, sort of everyone seems a little bit more stressed i remember the day after i remember the day after the election uh after you know when when trump when it was sort of official that trump i know a lot of people you know were holding out hope well into the night that something was going to turn around uh but when the next day when it was like official that like you know that hillary lost trump won he was going to be president people just you know walking through the streets of dc downtown and places people just looked absolutely distraught like it 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 was like a pall had fallen over the city everyone had everyone had looks on their faces as if their you know their dog just died or something you know something you know very something of that nature but it you know it's gotten better uh i think people are learning to you know for better or for worse people are learning to live with it and you know, deal with it in, in uh, other ways. So it's definitely gotten better. But there was a time when there was, you know, in the sort of days right after it that things were looking dark. Sure. Yeah. I can imagine the shock from that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, well, let's talk about this latest article that you wrote um, mm-hmm. for the Washington Examiner. It's an article titled uh, White Males in Generation Z Aren't That Woke <laughs> After All. And I love it because, I first of all, I love the term woke. And uh, for, for those who are listening and maybe they don't know the concept of being woke, could you explain what that means to be a woke individual? Yeah, so I actually only very recently uh, heard that term. A friend of mine who is also a Young Voices advocate, uh, her name is Adriana, and she works out at uh, – she works out in California. And she actually introduced me to that term because I had I had written – a similar piece to this one before and she you know she said something to the effect like it's always nice to meet like woke libertarians and I was like I don't I don't really know what that means and it's essentially just sort of like a, a you know you know younger you know particularly you know gen people in generation Z you know you know teenagers and early 20 somethings right now you know the generation right after millennials they use it to signify someone who is sort of, I guess they would say, you know, culturally, uh, cult- you know, I guess culturally liberal, culturally aware, like you know, they, you know, they're, they're aware of things like you know, white privilege and you know how you know how race affects how race and identity are important to people, you know, particularly people of color. Um, I, so it's it's sort of like a way of saying that like you're you're not backwards, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> So it's interesting because all the research that I've seen on Generation Z, um, they seem like it seems like generations are getting better. I mean, they, they're very entrepreneurial. They're very independent. Um, they respond well to coaching. Um, like they seem, and and, and they, they grew up in this recession time, so they kind of have a more realistic view. Um, they seem like good folks, but in your article, you say that polls being conducted, especially among young white men and women, you say 36% uh, say so-called reverse uh, reverse discrimination is a serious problem in America um, as, as much as discrimination against minority groups. So that whole idea of reverse discrimination or reverse racism, um, it's one that has been talked about for a while. Um, and some people don't believe it's a thing. Other people say that it's absolutely a thing. Um, why... For you, is it troubling that um, a significant portion of 
the young generation uh, is saying that this is a serious problem. That, in other words, white people are being discriminated against as much or or very similar to minority groups. Well, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. And, you know, I guess the first and foremost reason why it's troubling is because I believe it's I think it's just empirically untrue, uh, you know. White, you know, white Americans are still, you know, among the most privileged people in the country. You know, though, you know, they have, you know, whites compared to blacks. White families are likely to have, you know, ten times more wealth than, you know, than, than black families and other and families of other ethnicities. And so, I think it's just, I think it's just empirically untrue. Now, that doesn't mean that you can never find an instance uh, in which, you know, a person, uh, you know, a Caucasian, particularly a Caucasian male. May you know be slighted, uh, slighted by a person of color for their, for their race. That doesn't mean that there are like there are you know zero instances of this, but to think that it's a, as serious a problem as discrimination against minority groups, I just I think that's just it's it's empirically untrue. And as far as, you know, another reason that I think it's you know particularly troubling is because it you know it sort of. It diminishes the significance of people who are actually, uh, who are actually still struggling, you know, with with racial discrimination and the legacy of the sort of America's history of racial racial discrimination. Uh, yeah, I wrote uh, a piece in the Examiner, not you know, about this same topic not long ago, and I said, you know, it it sort of it it sort of diminishes. It's sort of insensitive and diminishes the you know uh, diminishes the the legacy of racism, particularly you know to people who had to you know who have lived their life you know older African Americans who at one point they lived in fear of lynchings and they lived in fear of being murdered and things like that. It really it diminishes the significance of actual racism uh, in this you know in the same way that like you know people can you know criticize. Uh, you know, like people who are accused of rape, and it turn, you know, and you know, like false allegations, and they say, you know, they say that well, this 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 diminishes people who are actually, and it's mm-hmm. offensive to people who are actually who have actually been raped, like you know, and, and I, I think it's something along those lines. Right. And so, I, when when I see these things, the the question is, well, what is skewing that view for them? Um, because public opinion polls, you're dealing with these mm-hmm. subjective views. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the first thing I would think of is, well, they just, like you mentioned, there's African-Americans now that, that are older. They lived through the civil rights movement, or at least they, they grew up at a time where discrimination was real. My first thought is, well, now people today, thankfully, don't deal with the fear of lynching or the fear of uh-huh. not being able to go to a, to a school because of their color, right? Uh-huh. Um, so that would be my first impression of what's going on. What do you hypothesize could be some of the reasons that that there's this disconnect? Well, I mean, there's a f- there are a few. So I think, I mean, a lot of it is this idea that you know that particularly perpetuated on the right. Uh, you know, the, the political you know political incorrectness may have uh, you know may have something to do with it. Uh, I talk about uh, you know Stephen Pinker very recently. You know, was sort of uh, went viral for talking about like why. Some, you know, particularly younger, intelligent white males might be drawn to something like the alt right. Mm-hmm. And he talks about political correctness on campuses. Uh, he refers to—I didn't use this term into in the uh, in the article, 
but it's you know there's this term in sociology it's basically it's this idea of fragility and when certain topics on you know on campuses are considered undiscussable and sort of off the you know it's you know this is you know you don't talk about this in polite society and things like that nuance nuance goes out the window and then you can you can take you can take sort of things that you can take you know basic facts and draw sort of wildly incorrect conclusions from them and you know so you can look at, at something like the fact that you know on average blacks you know black americans commit more crimes than white americans you can look at that and you could you know you could you know wildly you know you could wildly conclude that that well that just that must mean that african americans are like inherently more violent or you know than white american than white americans mm-hmm. and if you and so if you're not so if you're not allowed to have these uncomfortable conversations about you know race and you know socio you know the sociological and economic impacts of race at, at on campuses then it definitely yeah you it feel you feel you know people may feel like they're being called to called to account for crimes that they didn't commit because i mean you know a 19 year old 20 year old white you know white male i mean he didn't he or she they didn't enslave anybody they didn't you know they didn't prevent someone from buying a home in their neighborhood you know they didn't discriminate against somebody on on the job market and so they you know by and large they feel like well i didn't do all this you know why? You know why do we have to talk about this? It's you know this idea of fragility, and so they feel like they're called to account for something that they did not do, and this can drive this this sense of this sort of defensive mechanism, where you know you find you 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 know white males may believe it's like well, you know I you know, I'm discriminated against too. It's like clearly being a white male is not in fashion these days. Uh, doesn't fit. Doesn't uh, doesn't hit all the points on sort of the intersectionality scale. It's like this is you know this is discrimination the same as same as that, right? And you you wrote that um, it's kind of this this belief that increased diversity harms uh, mm-hmm. harms white people. Uh, that's mm-hmm. kind of and, and certainly that's been capitalized on by the alt right um, mm-hmm. a bit in the Trump campaign. Well, a bit, a lot, and you pick your pick your word in the Trump campaign. Um, mm-hmm. Identity politics has been on the rise. And and so I think those are all interesting. But what's even more interesting to me um, is you also write about it. I think this originally came from uh, from a Vox contributor, but this idea of more antisocial attitudes and and almost uh-huh. what I read as this what I read into this is a uh, um, the 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 bubbles that we talk about. We don't get outside of our bubbles. Um, yeah. You mentioned Robert Putnam, who had that mm-hmm. work bowling alone, talking about mm-hmm. how people are less likely to be engaged in organizations and and, and different um, uh, different associations throughout their uh, throughout their community, um, mm-hmm. and that's leading to a lack of purpose, a lack of direction. Um, kind of paints a grim picture, but I, I think that's a very interesting point to be made. Yeah, uh, you know it's. This that part, admittedly, that part of the of the argument is is a little bit more conjectural because these things are incredibly complex and it's mm-hmm. hard to really it's hard to boil these things down and just like and definitively prove one thing or another. Sure. But you know, yeah, as the research of people like Robert Putnam and Charles Murray and others have shown, you know, there is this sort of been this sort of decline, you know, really over the last you know you know several decades of you know sort of civic life and. 
you know people are people are engaging in their communities less and less people aren't even engaging with their neighbors right. uh you know you know people i can't remember what the exact number is but you know it, there's an astonishing amount of people in america who don't even really know their next door neighbors and i kind of fall into this category myself in in some ways i live in an apartment building so you know, I don't. You know, I don't always. I don't always interact with the people who literally live. You know, 15 feet from me, um, because just the way apartment buildings are set up and everything. And yeah, so you there. You know, particularly young white males have grown up in a time of sort of increasing sort of social isolation, and you know they they you know they they may have lacked. You know, they may be lacking ways in which uh, you know civic organizations and everything basically teaches how to interact with one another. They teach us how to get along, or they help. You know, they, they develop the sort of social fabric that allows us to live together peacefully. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Tocqueville. You know, the you know Tocqueville would call it like the art of association. It nurtures mm-hmm. the art of association amongst disparate peoples, uh, and that that's been lacking. And so that that sort of you know social isolation uh, combined with you know rising anti-social attitudes. Uh, yeah, it could definitely lead to this this notion that. Uh, that you're sort of alone, you know, that, that you're under attack. I also saw something recently. I, I'm pretty sure it was Vox. It was one of those data-driven pieces um, mm-hmm. about the way that school districts are still fairly segregated today um, and the way that they draw those lines for who is, is routed to what school. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and you see, uh, you see that often the, the lower-income or minority communities are um, are zoned to one school, and then you have the um, the more well-off or the more uh, I, I don't want to say white communities because that wasn't really the point of it. But mm-hmm. you know, you, you do have those lines there, and, and perhaps that's even before people get into these out into society with with different organizations as they're young adults. I, I think it's even important to to begin it early with education because the education system part of it should be. Uh, teaching you how to interact with people who are different from yourself. Um, and I, I think that gets better in college because college campuses are often more of a melting mm-hmm. pot there. Um, but certainly uh, I think we're missing out on some of those opportunities there. Um, but yeah, there's still a big disconnect and it's troubling. Yeah. And it's only it really in terms of like neighborhoods and where people live, it really is only getting, it really is, I mean, neighborhoods by and large are becoming slightly more integrated across America in terms of like race mm-hmm. and ethnicity, but there's but we're being segregated in other ways, right. you know. So rich, you know, rich rich liberals or you know will will live next to other rich liberals. Rich conservatives will live next to other rich conservatives. Poor conservatives will live you know live together, particularly mm-hmm. in the rural parts of the country. So we are seeing this sort of social and now political segregation. Uh, the you know that uh, is really only getting worse not better so i recommend people check out the piece and kind of form their own uh, opinions about it i will put the link in the show notes so people can find that um again it's on the washington examiner i think i'm pretty sure it's still the first thing that comes up when you google generation z so that's that's another thing that you could do um i want to finish off just by asking you some some kind of just quick questions um about what inspired you and, and books you recommend and things like that. Um, so the, the first thing is what books, well, let's do it this way. What is, and I know this is a hard question. What's the one book that you would say really inspired um, your life in some way? It doesn't even have to be political. 
Yeah, so I would say two I would say the two most important thinkers to me who have sort of influenced my worldview as I've become an adult and now continue to be an adult um, would be you know Friedrich Hayek and Adam Smith. Um, Friedrich Hayek, particularly the constant the Constitution of Liberty, which is sort of like this you know and when it was released in the 1960s was a pretty a pretty sort of definitive and radical restatement of liberal sort of old world liberal ideas, not liberal in the way we use the word now, but old world liberal ideas about what it means to live in a free society. That was that's been hugely uh, influential to me. And then I would say the other Adam Smith's the theory of moral sentiments. Now everyone knows Adam Smith, of course, from the Wealth of Nations, sort of considered the father of you know modern economics. And uh, but before that, he wrote. Uh, in fact, I'm a bigger fan of it. It's basically it's a work of moral psychology and you know, moral philosophy, and it's all about sort of why why human beings are drawn to other you know what you know what what about us you know draws us to other human beings and our sympathies towards them. So I would say those those two sort of thinkers and those two books in particular have been incredibly incredibly influential in my worldview. So Constitution of Liberty and Theory of Moral Sentiments. Yes. Cool. I'll put those in the show notes as well. Um, if you were to give a book, which I'm starting to realize people don't give books as much anymore, uh, mm-hmm. but if you were to give one to someone, uh, someone who would actually read it, what's that book you would give? Um, that's a good question. So I would say just of, of, of recent books that sort of talk about this issue that we've been talking about today uh, and related to the to the article that I wrote, I would say Richard Rothstein's *The Color of Law*. It was released last year. Uh, was a sort of short or long listed for the National Book Award. He's an economist, and he it's all about uh, sort of federal housing segregation. And the you know we you know, you mentioned you know segregated neighborhoods a few minutes ago. He this book is a is a really good. Uh, synthesis of the history of federal housing segregation, in which it was it was federal policy to keep whites and Af- and black Americans separate, and how we still live with the the legacy of those of those policy decisions today. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I've been trying to finish up the city. It's a good book about how cities came to be, um, and so mm. that sounds like a good one to to add on to that. Um, well, cool. So those, those are some good book recommendations. Um, the final question that I want to wrap up with is as you do your work, as you, as you write about everything that you write about, what is the motivating factor behind it? What, what is the vision that you have for, um, for the world, for the country, for your, your life? Like what is that purpose there? Um, I would say, so the thing that sort of de- that uh, that drives me again, going back to Friedrich Hayek. Friedrich Hayek had this, you know, this, this this sort of famous quote where he says, "The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design." Now, of course, I'm not an economist, but you know, I sort of you know read. I'm not trained as an economist or anything like that. You know, I do a little bit of reading here and there, but I, I'm not I'm not like an expert on the topic or anything like that. But you know, Friedrich Hayek's whole sort of research program was demonstrating basically how unequipped government is to deal with the sort of complex uh, nature of of the social world and you know it's pretty in in the in 20th century America of course you know the progressive era sort of you know came about in the early 20th century and then dominated from there on out as far as you know, what the proper role of government was in our you know in our you know in social life and economic life and 
my goal anytime I write something is to try to show that government is not always best equipped to handle the problems that you want it to deal with, whether that's the economy, whether that's a certain kind of social issue, you know, using using the sort of the, 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 the long arm of the state to try to solve every social problem that, that, that you think needs to be solved is not only not only is it going to be ineffective in some ways it can be it can be counterproductive yeah i think that's one of the big uh the the big points of libertarianism it's, it's not that we're denying these problems exist it's not that we want uh or, or that we don't want solutions to happen to them um i think we just believe that the government isn't always the most effective way to to carry out solutions to those and that individuals and and in many cases the free market can provide a much better in terms of quality and efficiency a much better alternative um that uh, that could really help more so i think that's that's a great way of kind of summing that up um if people wanted to connect with you online uh through social media how could they do that yeah, they can find me on Twitter. Uh, my name, Jared A. Labor. Now, of course, my name is spelled a little uh, differently than most people think, but Jared, J-E-R-R-O-D-A-L-A-B-E-R. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, so if they want to, you know, if they want to check out, I, and that's where I post most of my, I don't have like a public Facebook page or anything like that. So I do most of my, post most of my work on my Twitter page so they can check it out there. Right on. Jared, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Jared one more time for coming on the show. And thank you to all of you for listening to the show. Um, there are other things you could have done with your 30 minutes, including uh, started to make a quiche. I don't know, but you chose to listen, listen to the show. Although technically you could listen to the show while you are making a quiche. And so there's a lot of possibilities that you can do in the multitasking realm. Uh, if you want to listen to any of the other shows we have here on the Outset Network, go to outsetmagazine.com slash podcast, and you can view our full lineup. Follow Outset at Outset Network on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Follow me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Perkins, as well as Instagram, facebook.com slash Stephen Perkins. Until our show the next time around, take care. God bless. Yeah.